What does it mean to be truly human? This is a conversation that is ongoing in our own culture, isn't it? What does it mean to be truly human? Is it something that is rooted in our biology? Or is it something that is distinct from, separate from our biology, a humanness that we subjectively create and fashion according to our own desires or what we might consider to be our ever-shifting and changing identity? Is it rooted in what we do? Is it rooted in our sexuality? Is it rooted in our ethnicity? What does it mean to be truly human? If the church is to be an effective witness in our context today, we have to be able to answer this question. And I think as we're going to see by the end of Psalm 8, we have to be able, according to the grace of God in Christ, to reflect true humanity as revealed in Christ. And in so doing, give credibility to the message that we preach and to give a hope to a world that has been woefully deceived and is completely adrift in a sea of subjectivism and completely lost. I don't know how many of you have ever considered that God has given us all that we need to know to do all that we need to do with respect to living out true humanity in Christ. But that's exactly what we're going to see this morning in Psalm 8. We'll here read it in just a moment. But here's the big idea. As we consider God's purposes for humanity and how that leads us to praise God's majesty. Here's the big idea of Psalm 8. If you're taking notes, this is essentially my sermon in a sentence. Consider how God cares for the weak and uses them for his purposes, then praise him for his greatness. Consider how God cares for the weak and uses them for his purposes and then praise him for his greatness. That's exactly what we see in Psalm 8. Psalm 1 really only has one main point. I'm so sorry for those of you who anticipated me having three points as always. Psalm 1 only has one main point. But there's three subpoints. The main point is this. Praise God's majesty. We're going to see that in verse 1 and in verse 9 as we talked about this last time. That forms an inclusio. Meaning that everything in between is included in this big idea of God's majesty. It's the bookends to the psalm. So the main point is praise God's majesty. But how do we do that? How do we get there? We're going to see three subpoints, three stanzas in this hymn that are going to help us and lay the path to our praising God's majesty. Subpoint number one, we're going to see in verses one and two, the second half of verse one there in verse two. And that is that God displays his majesty by confounding the strong with the weak. God displays his majesty by confounding the strong with the weak. Then we're going to see in verses three and four, the second subpoint, and that is that God displays his majesty by caring for humanity. He displays his majesty by 
caring for humanity. And then finally, in verses 5 through 8, the final subpoint is that God displays his majesty by crowning humanity. So to summarize, we have one main point, that is to praise God's majesty. And we have three subpoints, all pointing to that main point, And that is that God displays his majesty in three ways. By confounding the strong with the weak, by, de- by caring for humanity, and by crowning humanity. That's the path that we're on this morning through Psalm 8. Last week, we considered verses 1 and 9. And this week, we're going to spend the most of our time in verses 2 through 8. But just by way of review, let's read the psalm together. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep, all oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we've just discussed this main point, verses 1 and 9, praise God's Majesty. That's what he says here. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then in the second half of verse one, he explains, he kind of extrapolates this idea of majesty that God specifically has set his glory above the heavens. That is not to say that God is somehow far away from us. That is to say that God is far above us in glory and in greatness and in majesty. Last week, we considered the majesty of God, the greatness of God in two ways. We looked at Psalm 139 and we considered how God is incomprehensible. That is that he cannot be fully comprehended by anyone but himself. Finite creatures like you and I cannot wrap our minds around he who is infinite. Only infinite things can understand infinite things. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it's the spirit of God that searches the deep things of God. We cannot know God as he is unless God through his spirit reveals himself to us. That he is incomprehensible. And that God must be incomprehensible if he is to be truly God. Because a God which can be fully comprehended is a God that is too small and is too weak to be worthy of our worship. If God is not incomprehensible, he is not God. He must be incomprehensible to be God. But we also looked at Isaiah chapter 40. And we considered not only God's incomprehensibility, but we considered God's incomparability. That is that he cannot be compared to anything that he has created. In other words, God is not a bigger and better version of the most majestic things that we can consider or think about. He is not a bigger and better version of ourselves. 
We should not think about God in the way that you might think about a father being greater than his children. I am in many ways greater than my children. I am wiser, I am stronger, I am bigger. They are little versions of me. But that is not how we should be thinking about God. God doesn't exist on a spectrum with us and other things as if he is the greatest thing on the one end and we are somewhere down the line, down the spectrum. God is altogether different from us. So my children are of the same essence as me. So even though I am greater than they are, they share in my nature and will one day grow up to be as I am. That is not the way that we think about God. God is not a bigger and better version of ourselves. He is altogether different. He cannot be compared to even the greatest things that we could imagine or lay our eyes on in this world. He is holy and righteous and altogether set apart from that which he has created. So we considered how God was incomprehensible but also that God is incomparable. You cannot comprehend him and you cannot compare him with anything because he is so majestic. He is great. And that's at the heart of what the psalmist is saying. David is saying, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how great, how incomprehensible, how incomparable is your name in all the earth. Well, the rest of the psalm is going to Explore this idea. How is it that God displays his majesty? Or as we read in the book of Job, where do we see the whispers of his greatness? In subpoint number one, beginning in verse two there, we see, first of all, that God displays his majesty by confounding the strong with the weak. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That word babies there that you see at the beginning of verse 2, it has a wider range than just newborns. It's talking about young children, toddlers, those who are just learning to speak. And so what David is saying is that from the lisping and, and learning and stammering tongues of those who are small and weak, God essentially, verse 2, does two things. That God reveals his glory. He does that by establishing strength. He reveals his glory and he routs his enemies. That through the mouths of babies and infants, he reveals his glory and he routs his enemies. This is exactly what we see in the passage that I read earlier in our gathering in Matthew 21. I hope that you're prepared and you have your Bibles out because we're going to be all over the Bible this morning. So put your ribbon or put your finger in there or bookmark it in your phone. And I want you to go to Matthew chapter 21. Because here we're going to see Jesus... Refer to Psalm 8 to make sense of his own earthly ministry. Later on, we're going to see that not only does Jesus refer to Psalm 8, but Paul's going to refer to Psalm 8, and the author of Hebrews is going to refer to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a big deal when it comes to understanding God's purposes in the world. So turn with me to the right, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. Here Jesus is on a collision course for the cross. He's into Jerusalem. He's come into the temple. He has cleared it out. And as he has established his authority in the temple, verse 14, here's what we see. We see the blind and the lame are coming and they were healed. 
And then in verse 15, you notice at the end of that, children are crying out as they witness what it is that Jesus is doing. And what is it that they cry in verse 15? Hosanna, that is adoration, praise to the son of David. Oh, but when they did, verse 15, notice the chief priests and the scribes, when they saw all the wonderful things that Jesus had done, verse 14, and when they saw what the children were saying, it says they were indignant. They were horrified that Jesus would allow the children to say the things that they're saying. And so in verse 16, Jesus quotes and interprets Psalm 8-2 to make sense of the events that are happening in his earthly ministry. And here he teaches that through the lisping, learning, stammering tongues of these children... Psalm 8 was being fulfilled in two ways. Do you see that there? He says in verse 16, have you not heard? Do you hear what they're saying? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. That's Psalm 8 too. And so he's teaching that through the mouths of these children, these little ones, these weak and supposedly ignorant babies and children... Psalm 8 is being fulfilled in two ways. Number one, that in Christ, God is routing his enemies. And secondly, in Christ, God is revealing his glory, just as we saw in Psalm 8. You consider, first of all, that in Christ, God is routing his enemies. Here we see that they were indignant. Those who are strong are being established as weak. And those who are weak are establishing that God is strong. God is routing his enemies through the ministry of his son, Jesus. But not only that, that through these lisping and learning and stammering tongues of children, they're fulfilling Psalm 8 and that in Christ, God is revealing his glory. That when Jesus accepted the praise of these children, he was accepting the praise of God for himself. There are many who argue that Jesus never identifies himself as God. In fact, he does it all over the gospel accounts. And one of the places is right here. He is receiving worship, adoration, Hosanna, that belongs only to the one true God, to himself as if he himself is worthy to receive it. And so you may have noticed that the Psalm 8 in our Bibles, though, as he quotes it, that the Psalm 8 in our Bibles is different than the Psalm 8 quoted by Jesus. We read in... Psalm 8, where it says you have established strength. That's the way that the Hebrew Old Testament is actually literally translated. But Jesus here is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament that says you have prepared praise. Well, the Greek version is a paraphrase that is telling us how God establishes strength from children. Namely, by preparing praise from them. That is that Jesus is here affirming this interpretation, and then he's applying it to himself. And this is an absolutely stunning claim. Because when, when the children were praising Jesus, they were praising God. And in allowing the children to praise him in this way, Jesus was affirming that he is the very God of their praise. The God of Psalm 8. The God who confounds the strong through the weak. So Jesus 
is the very God of Psalm 8, establishing strength and earning praise for himself through the appointed mouths of those who are weak. But secondly, go back to Psalm 8. Let's consider our second subpoint. We've just seen that God displays his majesty by confounding the weak or the strong through the weak. But here at subpoint 2, verses 3 and 4, we're going to see that God displays his majesty by caring for humanity. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, oh, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I don't know how many of you have ever spent time out in the country looking at the sky where there's no light pollution. There's no street lamps. There's no car lights. There's no house lights. You're in pitch dark looking at the sky and it's like the stars form a, a sheet across the sky. You can see billions upon billions of stars. You can see planets and, and galaxies. It's breathtaking. But the Milky Way looks like a cloud of stars. In fact, the Milky Way is 200 to 400 billion stars turning together like a giant pinwheel some 100 light years across. That is massive. In the 1920s, Edwin Hubble showed that our galaxy is one of many galaxies in the universe. In fact, some astronomers estimate that there's close to 200 billion galaxies, just like our galaxy. The Hubble telescope has given us a front row seat to the Tarantula Nebula, the Magellanic clouds, and even the collision of a comet on Jupiter. And all of this, every bit of it, and much more, is all God's handiwork. The vast distances and the nuclear explosions of the stars, none of that is rough, sweaty work for God. It's not like laying asphalt for God. It is like detailed, delicate work in the way that a woman might weave lace. Only instead of building the cosmos one stitch at a time, what we learn in Genesis 1 is that God created the entire universe simply by speaking it into existence. In fact, Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 will go on and tell us that his eternal son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has been ever since upholding the entire universe by the power of his word. So God has created everything by the power of his word and Christ is now upholding all things by the power of his word. And so David naturally asks in verse 4, considering all of these things, what is man that you're mindful of it? We are specks. We are so small in the midst of all of this. Who are you to even think of us or to be concerned for us or even to care for us? William Beebe, the naturalist, used to tell a story about Teddy Roosevelt. At Sagamore Hill, after talking for the evening, the two of them would go out in the lawn and search the skies for a certain spot of star-like light near the lower left-hand corner of the great square Pegasus. Then Roosevelt would recite, that is the spiral galaxy. That's what I imagine he sounded like. In Andromeda, it is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies and it consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And then Roosevelt would just grin and he would say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. 
And that's exactly what David is considering here. That it's good to look at the night sky and to feel really small. But the majesty of the cosmos should lead us to praise God's greater majesty, which is on display not only through all that he has created, but even more so through his providential concern through small and frail creatures like us. That the God who has named every star, no star hidden from his sight, sees every single one of us, knows us by name, has counted every hair on our heads and cares for us minute by minute and day by day. Who are we? In this vast scope of the cosmos, we're specks of dust. And yet God has cared for us. In fact, the sense of the Hebrew word that you see there for man in verse 4 is this idea of frail and mortal. It's the idea that David is importing into that idea of son of man in the second half of verse 4, that we are frail and mortal beings set as specks of dust in the midst of a vast cosmos that displays the glory of God. So David is mesmerized by the greatness of God in considering and in providing for such small, seemingly insignificant creatures as him. But brothers and sisters, how much more should we praise God's greatness as we consider how he has provided his own son to meet us in our greatest need and to redeem us from the penalty of sin. It's not insignificant that Jesus, the son of David, would apply this title, the son of man, during his, to himself during his earthly ministry. That the great God of the universe became frail and mortal just as we are through the incarnation of his son. That's why the great Baptist confession says this, the son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. He made the world and he sustains and governs everything he has made. But when the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. Brothers and sisters, the evidence for Christ's true humanity is overwhelming, as overwhelming as it is for his full divinity, as we just saw in Matthew 21. That just a scan of the New Testament, we discover that he was born of a woman, the son of Mary, a descendant of David, according to the flesh. We see that he had a body, that he had bones and flesh, blood and a soul. He had a will and he had a spirit. And that, and that Christ experienced everything, all of the same physical sensations that you and I experience, hunger and thirst and fatigue. We read in John 11 that he wept, in Luke 19 that he wailed, in Mark 7 that he sighed, and in Mark 8 that he groaned. Jesus isn't Clark Kent. He's not deity in a human suit. He was human in every way that you and I are human. All of the essential properties and the common weaknesses that come with humanity. 
and yet without sin. Why is this so important? I need you to listen to me here. Why is this so important? Because our salvation depends as much on Jesus' humanity as it does on his divinity. That our bodies, according to Paul in Romans 6, are instruments, literally weapons of unrighteousness. That is who every single one of us are and what we do apart from Christ. That in Adam, when he sinned, death came into the world and death and sin spread to all men and so all have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. And so we are, apart from the grace of God and the mercy of Christ, weapons of unrighteousness. That is what our flesh, our bodies are. We don't use our minds. We don't use our bodies, our strength for God's glory, as Adam prayed, or as Ryan prayed. But rather, we use it for our own glory at the expense of God's glory. We love to rob God of his glory. We use it as weapons of unrighteousness. And so when the fullness of time came then, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the maker, creator, and sustainer of the universe, took on a body just like ours, was born of a woman, the son of Mary. He took on a body exactly like ours so that he might sanctify our bodies to God and turn weapons of unrighteousness into weapons of righteousness. That's what Romans 6 is all about. In other words... The majestic son of God became a frail and mortal son of man so that there would be nothing in us that was lost that Christ cannot save. I want you to get rid of the notion that Christ just came to save disembodied souls to float in some ethereal existence for eternity. Christ came to save and redeem all of you. That is why we are resurrection people. And Christ becoming a man means there is nothing in you that was lost. In body and soul. That Christ cannot save. Every ounce of you is savable. Not just because of Christ's divinity, but because of his humanity. He must be fully God, and he must be fully man so that he might be a re perfect representative of God to man and of man to God to make atonement for our sins. Just as we saw in our assurance of pardon, that he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is nothing in you that Christ, because of his humanity, cannot save. And so you may be here this morning and you see the effects of sin and of this cursed world in your life. Your body is failing. Your mind is misfiring. You are currently even now on medication, perhaps for, for psychological reasons. There is nothing in your life that Christ will not save and will not redeem by his power, if not in this life, then at his coming when you are resurrected. We will be fully and finally saved into a fully embodied existence whereby we will serve him and rule with him forever.
There is nothing in us that was lost that Christ cannot save. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Oh, but that the son of God would become a son of man to save son of men. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What other response could we give? That God can save us in such a fashion is incomprehensible. That he would save us in such a fashion is incomparable. God is majestic. And so he displays his majesty by caring for humanity. But thirdly and finally, we see in verses 5 through 8 that God displays his majesty by crowning humanity. Read along with me, beginning in verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and all oxen and all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Here we see essentially two things. In verse 5, we see man's coronation. And in verse 6, we see man's dominion. We see man's coronation. In verse 5, and we see man's dominion in verses 6 through 8. Let's consider man's coronation, his being crowned. Here, the psalmist says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. That name there, heavenly beings, is the Hebrew word Elohim, and it can be used throughout the Old Testament to mean either God or it can we referred to mean angels or the angelic realm or spiritual heavenly beings. Many of your translations here will say heavenly beings. Some of your translations may say God. And I think the translations that say God is a better translation. Because what we see in verses 5 all the way through 8 is basically being ripped off by David from Genesis chapter 1. It's taken directly from Genesis. And in Genesis 1, the name used for God is Elohim, that he is the one who is creating all things. And so here I think that as David rips all of this language from Genesis chapter 1, he is making reference to the God who is created. He says, you have made him a little lower than God himself, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Well, what are we saying here? Are we saying that man is, is God, is there's some divinity in us. No, that's not what we're saying. But we are saying that humanity was made a little lower than God in that man was given a position above the rest of creation. Look at verse 2, or in verse 1 rather. It says here that God has set his glory above his creation. Well, here in verse 5, we see that humanity has been created lower than God and yet has been crowned with glory that is above the rest of creation. Well, what does this mean? It means that while humans are small and insignificant seemingly with, when compared to the rest of creation, that's verses 3 and 4, Humanity was created to reflect God's glory in a unique way that the rest of creation cannot do. 
Specifically, that God has crowned humanity to reflect his glory by ruling over his creation in his place. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 8. We've seen man's coronation in verse 5, but now we see man's dominion. Of man ruling in the place of God like a priest king. A king ruling as God does, and yet ruling in God's place as a mediating ruler. He is a priest king. He is a vice regent, ruling in God's place on behalf of God. And it says this in verse 6, that you have given him dominion. You have put all things under his feet. Well, as I said before, David is just taking this language from Genesis chapter 1. Adam and Eve had this kind of authority. This is the authority and dominion that God had given to them. And through Adam and Eve's fruitfulness, humanity would then fill the earth and they would collectively rule in God's place over God's creation, not replacing God, but ruling on behalf of God over his creation. They were his vice regents. But when Adam sinned, the entire creation was cursed. Sin and death spread to all men such that all have sinned. And so when humanity fell into sin... Well, now they no longer exercise a rule with righteousness over a perfect creation under a heavenly father. But now humanity rules with sin and corruption under their father, the devil, John 8, who Jesus in John 14 says is now the ruler of this world. The keys to creation have changed hands at the fall, so to speak. But all the way back in the garden where it seemed that Satan had won, God made a promise. He promised that the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. And he promised that a second Adam would come and that this second Adam, this final Adam, would regain creation and would restore what was lost by the first Adam. He would do all of this by crushing the head of the ruler of this world. And the second Adam will be the firstborn of a new humanity who will be restored by God to rule with righteousness in his place, just as Adam was created to do, but had forfeited and abdicated through sin. And so Psalm 8 longingly looks back to Genesis 1 and hopefully looks forward to Christ, the second Adam. And this is exactly how the author of Hebrews interprets Psalm 8. Turn with me to your right, to Hebrews chapter 2. Almost to the end of your Bible. The thesis of the entire book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ over all things that Jesus is greater. You might put it this way. It is the majesty of Christ. So he is striking the tone of of Psalm 8, all the way through his letter. He begins with the supremacy of God's Son in chapter 1. He talks about the supremacy of God, or the supremacy of Christ, even over angels as it comes to our salvation. And then he picks up here in verse 5 of chapter 2. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
That world to come is the new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Sound familiar? That's Psalm 8. You made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. What are we talking about here? To whom has God subjected the world to come? To whom has God subjected the new creation? The answer, the man of Psalm 8, who is lowly and yet crowned with glory. And then in the second half of eight, of verse 8, we see that everything has been subjected to this man. But right now, it doesn't really seem that way, does it? Everything seems a little out of control. That if this man's so great and he's ruling with all power and authority and dominion, then why don't we see that everywhere? Well, that's what he's answering. That while we don't see his rule in this world, we will see it in the world to come. So while we may not see it as clearly today, what we do see, verse 9, is we see him. Who? The man of Psalm 8. Who is the man of Psalm 8? The man of Psalm 8 is a man who was made lower than the angels and yet was crowned with glory and honor, namely Jesus. Jesus Christ is the perfect and final Adam. He is the first fruits of a new humanity. He is the first fruits of God restoring the very purpose and identity, the telos of humanity as found in Genesis 1, as longed for in Psalm 8, and now fulfilled in Christ. That is how the author of Hebrews is interpreting Psalm 8 through Jesus. And it's how we're to make sense of ourselves. That Jesus Christ is the perfect and final Adam. He is the first fruits of a new humanity. Well, the Apostle Paul is going to pick up on this theme, this Psalm 8 theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I told you we're going to be in your Bible a little bit. So flip with me to your left, 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, if you've reached Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, You've gone a little too far. Just go a little bit more to your right. If you're still in Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, you haven't gone quite far enough. Keep going to your left. First Corinthians chapter 15. Here, Paul is considering what is of first importance. That is that Christ was crucified and in three days was raised from the dead, according to eyewitness accounts. And he's talking about all the glorious truths that are attached to his resurrection. And I would love to spend more time in the entire chapter, but we're just going to focus on a handful of verses. Let's begin in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So by being raised from the dead, Christ is the final Adam. He's the firstfruits of a new humanity who will be raised to life with him. And then Paul continues, verse 24. Then comes the end. 
when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, that is, crushing the head of the serpent. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We read here that in the end, that's what we see there in verse 24. In the end, he will destroy every rule and every authority and every power. Verse 24. In verse 25, he will put all enemies under his feet, including the greatest and final enemy. Verse 26, death itself. But how is Christ able to do this? How is he able to put all of his enemies under his feet, including death? Well, Paul tells us in verse 27, because when Christ was raised from the dead, tell me if this sounds familiar, God put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Psalm 8. Paul is going back to Psalm 8. And he's making sense of God's glorious purposes for humanity through what Christ has accomplished, not only in his death, but in his being raised by the power of God to new life. Paul understands that the whole Bible is essentially the story of two Adams. The first Adam lost dominion over creation and death spread to humanity. But Jesus Christ, the last Adam, has regained that dominion and in the end will raise a new humanity to life to share in his dominion over all of creation. But why did Christ do this? What's the, what's the goal? What's the telos? What's the end? Verse 28, Paul tells us that when all things are subjected to him in a fulfillment of Psalm 8, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him so that, here's the purpose, God may be all in all. So when Christ returns, here's what we see. We see a new humanity as humanity was created to be, raised to life so that they might dwell with God and rule with Christ forever. That's what Paul sees. That's the goal of Psalm 8. That is what the God of Psalm 8 is doing. But these Psalm 8 promises, they're not just future promises. Everything that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 15 is all in the future tense in terms of its consummation, in the end, when he comes. Verse 28, that God may be one day all in all. But all of these Psalm 8 promises, they're not just future promises. They're going to be totally consummated at Christ's return, but the promises of a new humanity ruling with Christ have already been inaugurated in this world. They've already begun, and you can see it. Where do you find it? You find it in the church. That we, as James says, are the first fruits following Christ of all of God's elect that will come in between now and the end of the age. We are the ones with whom God dwells, and we are now ruling with Christ. It's already been inaugurated, started. All of these future 1 Corinthians 15 realities of what God is going to do in a new humanity has already begun. It's like winter is over, spring has started. 
And we are the first sprigs of color and of life in God's great redemptive purposes to restore man to his rightful place in Christ. Well, keeping that in mind, let's visit our final text this morning. Turn a little bit to your right to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're considering this idea that all of these promises of a new humanity in Psalm 8 will be consummated at Christ's return, but they're not just future promises. They've already been inaugurated in the church. Now, this is one big long run-on sentence, and we're just going to jump right in the middle of it. But essentially, in verse 19, Paul is telling the church of the uh, immeasurable greatness that is the majesty of God's power that is at work in them. And then in verses 20 and 21, he says that the power that is at work in us is the very same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the very same power that seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And with Christ now being seated at the right hand in the heavenly places, he has been exalted, verse 21, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So God has raised him from the dead and God has exalted him. But what else did he do? Look at verse 22 and tell me if this sounds familiar. And he put all things under his feet. That's Psalm 8. Psalm 8's all over your Bible. It's really big. And Paul's picking up on this Psalm 8 idea, just as the author of the Hebrews was. And just as he did in 1 Corinthians 15. But here, he's expanding the interpretation of what Psalm 8 is meaning. He's stretching it a little bit further. That God has given all dominion over all things to Christ. But in verse 22, he has given Christ to the church. And just as he said was the ultimate goal in 1 Corinthians 15, that God would be all in all, that now in Christ, who dwells with his body, that is the church, is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Isn't that amazing? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that the whole goal of restoring a new humanity was that God would fill all in all. Oh, look forward to that day. But here he's saying in Ephesians 1, that day has come. That in Christ, who's the fullness of deity, bodily, we have been filled with him. And insofar as we have been filled in Christ, then God fills all in all in his church. That we are the dwelling place of God. It's why Paul elsewhere talks about the church as being a temple. In the Old Testament, the temple was where God dwelled with his people, though only temporarily. But in the church, in union with Christ and through the power of the Spirit, God is dwelling with his people permanently because he has made a new covenant with them in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. So in 1 Corinthians 15, we saw a future new humanity who will be raised to new life by God's power, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, who will be all in all, and will rule with Christ over all things. Future. But what we find in Ephesians 1 and in every local church 
that is faithful to the gospel with born-again believers all over the world, including our own, is the inauguration, the beginning of a new humanity that has been raised to new life by God's power and has been filled with the knowledge of the glory of God and is now ruling with Christ, not yet over all things, but ruling by the scepter of his word that is by the proclamation of his gospel so that we might bind on earth what is bound in heaven and we might loose on earth what is loosed in heaven. That we now dwell with God in Christ and we have been given the keys to his kingdom on earth until he returns again. I wonder if you drove to church this morning thinking those kinds of thoughts about this church. I can't wait to gather with my brothers and sisters who are part of the inaugurated new humanity and have now been commissioned by Christ who's been given authority over all things to go out and make disciples by his authority through the proclamation of the word, planting churches, saving in all of the elect through the preaching of the gospel by God's grace. This is what we get to participate in. The church is not simply a social organization with shared religious interests. We are not a political action group. I mean, we're a political group, but we're a political group that is not of this world. Every local church is the inauguration of a new humanity who dwells with God in Christ by the power of the Spirit and both by power and word rules in Christ's place in the world. That is what God created humanity to be. That is what he has recreated you and I for, and it has begun. And when Christ returns, it will be consummated and complete. Well, what does this mean? Let me just give you a couple applications. Number one, the only place in the entire world where a person can know what it means to be truly human is in the local church. This is one of God's great purposes for his church. Of men and women that are being conformed to the glory of Christ, transformed from one shade of glory to the next, through the power of his spirit and the working of his word in their lives, as they submit themselves to his lordship. That we begin to see men and women being transformed into those who begin to love, though not yet perfectly, God with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength and begin seeking to actively love their neighbor as themselves as an outpouring of their love for God. There is no place in the whole world that you can find that which is the essence of humanity as God intended it to be than in local churches. That is God's great purpose for local churches. And so in a world that is clamoring on what it really means to be human, with all of the conversations that are happening around intersectionality and and social justice and those kinds of things, some of which may be helpful, some of which may not be helpful, there is no one apart from God's word that can think high enough thoughts about humanity. That we know that in Christ, 
Humans are not just a bundle of biological random cells and mess formed over billions of years and random processes. We know that we have been created by God in his image and that we are being restored to the very dignity, value, worth, and position for which God has created humanity from the very beginning. And all of this in Christ. He is the second Adam. The first fruits of a new humanity. And if you're here and you have trusted in Christ and you are being redeemed and changed and transformed in his image by his grace, then you are part of that new humanity. And that is part of the great mission that he has given us in the world. Do you think about that when you drove to church this morning? That's the vision of Psalm 8 for the church. But secondly, not only is the local church the only place in the entire world where a person can begin to know what it means to be truly human. But the local church is the one place in the entire world where Christ has delegated his kingly authority on earth as it is in heaven. When Adam was put in the garden, he was told to work it and to watch over it. That is that he was to cultivate it and to be fruitful and to see the glory of God grow and expand and spread according to God's word. That he was to dwell with God and enjoy God and he was to watch over it. That is that he was to keep things out of the garden that were to prevent the flourishing of he and his wife and those who would come from him as they walk with God and seek to be fruitful in the world ruling and exercising dominion in their place. They were to watch over and keep out things like serpents. And he failed to do that. It's interesting because later in the Old Testament, the exact same two verbs are used of Israel's priesthood. They were to work and to watch over God's temple. Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the temple of God and man dwelling with God in his temple. In Israel, we see the presence of God dwelling again, once again, in his temple. Only now it's a temple made with human hands. And it's the job of a priesthood to rule over that temple, to watch it, to watch over it and to work it. Just as Adam did, yet imperfectly. All of this is just a type of one who is yet to come, who would perfectly work and to watch over God's field. And now that has been delegated by him. That is Christ to us. That we are, as Adam intended to be, priest kings. That we are a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, Peter says. And that is true of every single believer in here individually, and it's especially true of us corporately. And we have a job as a church, collectively, to work and to watch over the temple of God that is his church. That we have a collective, cooperating responsibility to take his word, which is the scepter of his rule, to apply it to our lives in such a way that we might be able to rightly represent God to the world and that we might call sinners to repentance. That we, we would bring in those with right professions into our church and we would affirm right doctrine as we seek to work it and we seek to watch over it 
This is not just the job of the pastors. The job of a pastor, my job in this church, is not to do that for you. My job as a church is to guard you, to protect you, and most notably to equip you to carry out your key wielding responsibilities in this world as we seek to affirm true professions of faith and true gospel professions. That is that we love, encourage, and guard one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we might be fruitful and that we might multiply. Why is that significant? Because if Christ has delegated his own authority to every local church, then that means that nobody in this room is allowed to be a passive consumer. It means that everybody in this room has had that kind of authority invested in them along with their brothers and sisters as we constitute under the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And as we come together, we are no longer consumers, but we are joyful proprietors that seek to work and to watch over one another with the gospel. That is what he has commissioned us to do. That's what we see, isn't it? When Christ commissions his apostles, his church in Matthew 28, he stands on the mountain commissioning them to go make disciples. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And I will be with you always. Now I want you to go take the authority that I'm deputizing you with. And I want you to go preach the gospel. I want you to make disciples. And I want you to take every single man or woman who has been brought into fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into the life, the ministry of this new humanity that is the church. That is the Great Commission. Did you think about church that way when you came in this morning? That is what Christ has given us. I pray that he would bring it about by his grace as he already has given it to us in Christ. Pray with me.